Welcome to yet another episode of Mattathias Reads the World, a crappy podcast, family podcast inspired by the one, the original, James's crappy podcast. Um, tonight we're here for yet another episode of our continuing series, Mattathias Reads the Lit Blitz, and I am here with Chanel Earl, um, who is another member of the Lit Blitz's freshman class, 2020. Um, one of this year's first-time finalists. Um, and she brought to the Litlitz a really, truly amazing short story about um, intergenerational experience and um, how kind of we come to our recognition of our interconnectedness and relationships in the world. Um, and so I'm very excited to have her share that with you and then to discuss that together. But to start off with, Chanel, let's, let's have you say a few words about yourself. All right. It's exciting to be here. Um, I don't know what to say about me. Um, my name is Chanel Earl. I have always been a writer. I have been reading Lit Blitz submissions and submitting to the Lit Blitz for years now, and I'm excited to finally be a finalist. Wonderful. Well, we're definitely glad that you're finally finalist because um, you, you've brought a, a strong piece here. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I have been reading the Lit Blitz since its very first year. Actually, its first year I was on my mission and my brother and sister-in-law who organized the contest, um, they printed off the finalists that year and mailed them to me. Um, and so I That's got great. them as letters on my mission. Um, I think I was in Bangalore at the time. It would have been when I was in Bangalore, like right after I got to Chennai. Um, and yeah, I, so I very strongly remember reading, especially like William Morris's short story, The Elder Who Couldn't Stop Drumming, um, which is a fascinating semi-psychedelic short story about mission life. Um, and it just being so absolutely true to me. Um, but because of that, I, you know, I'm fairly invested in the Lit Blitz. And every year I'm very excited to see who the new finalists are. Um, and this year was interesting. Several of the new finalists are personal friends of mine. And so it was exciting to see them um, have pieces in the Blitz. Um, but your name was one that I sadly did not recognize yet. And so I went, oh, who is, who is this person? I'll, you know, I'll Google uh, to see if she has other stories up anywhere else. Um, and I ran into your short story, Behold, um, which was published on the Archives blog. The Archive is a Mormon arts collective, uh, for those of you who have not yet heard of them. Um, and yeah, that one is also a trip. Uh, do you want to describe for our listeners, just the basic premise of your story, Behold? Yeah, um, that one really was an interesting piece to write. And I, I will confess, it came, um, it came out after I got a writing prompt. So I was given a writing prompt to write something where I was personifying um, personifying an object or, you know, turning something that wasn't human and giving it more of a character. 
And I don't know why the idea came to me, but I was like, what if the scars that Christ has um, had personality? They had traits. What if he, what if he saw in them um, almost friends? Uh-huh. And so we just wrote this short piece where it's kind of a tour of how he views the different scars on his hands and on his feet and in his side. I didn't go into great depth to every scar, but yeah. I came out and I felt like it was really interesting. It had some actual emotion and yeah, it was a piece that I really enjoyed writing. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely um, a portrayal of Jesus that will be, I think both engaging and discomforting to most people who read it. Yeah. Um, it's definitely not the like kind of tone that we're used to thinking of Jesus having. Um, yeah. And I, and I thought at the time, and this is, this is something interesting about going to the BYU MFA program. Cause right now I'm an MFA student at BYU. Uh-huh. Okay. I'm, I'm starting my second year. Uh-huh. And I thought when we wrote it, that it was pretty risky uh-huh. And I took it to a workshop, and there was not really much of a a strong reaction from my workshop participants. Huh. Um, and so I ended up thinking, man, it might be a little tamer than I thought. Maybe this is just like a normal piece. And then, and then since then, you know, every once in a while, I'll hear that no, it it maybe was more risky than. <laughs> They let on if that if that makes sense. Yeah, that they they didn't yet know how to respond in an immediate critique session to what it was making them think about. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so I encourage if if you want to spend a few minutes being very uncomfortable while you think about Jesus, um, go and look up uh, Chanel's piece "Behold," which I will link in the show notes as well if I remember. Um, and having, you know, started off with that, let's actually get to your Lit Blitz piece for this year. Um, if you would read that for us. I'd love to, and hopefully it won't make anyone uncomfortable. I don't think that's one of the traits of this one. Um, this piece is called Three Generations of Sonder, and it starts with Jane in 1959. We rented a small basement apartment next to the university so John could come home for lunch if he wanted to. But he often didn't, which left us alone for 10, 12, even 16 hours on some days. And although we hadn't planned on having another child while he was in school, I didn't think I could handle a third, Linda was born the year after we moved in, small and screaming. She was louder than our other children, but more delicate. And when I first saw her, I wondered if she had sensed that she was coming to a mother who felt as small and helpless as she looked. Life was a busy mess with three small children at home. Every day I woke up to cries from the next room. Then I fed, clothed, carried, played with, taught, cleaned, entertained, conversed with, and kept alive three small children until bedtime when I climbed into a hole underneath my quilts and listened to John snore, waiting for morning. Time passed. When Linda was over a year old, my melancholy began to lift. My husband kept going to school, My kids kept crying and making messes, but my soul started to open up to moments of joy. The kids splashing in the bathtub or bringing me bouquets of dandelions, classical music on the radio, chocolate, rain, creating the perfect baked Alaska. 
And then, in what I expected to be a completely ordinary moment shortly before her second birthday, during a weekday lunch hour, Linda grabbed my face between her two little hands and pulled it close to hers. She had strawberry jam on her finger, and I wanted to pull away, but I could tell she had something important to say. She was born of me, but was more than just an extension of her mother. She was a real person with desires and opinions of her own. Jam, she screamed excitedly. Then she let go and I wiped my smiling face while she took a bite of her sandwich. Linda, 1968. I don't understand exactly why it hit me at that time. I remember thinking that my life and the world around me were both falling apart. My parents had decided to get divorced. My uncle had just returned injured from Vietnam. My older siblings were pushing forcefully against every boundary, trying to find out what they could get away with. And I, nine years old, felt like I was beginning to vanish, like I was evaporating into an atmosphere of violence and contention, slowly floating away alone. Then, although I neither expected nor sought to be, I was enlightened. I remember the very moment. It was during primary. I was sitting next to the window, looking out at the parking lot, watching the wind and rain come down in sheets. It swirled around in the gutters and disappeared into large grates near the sidewalk. I was feeling sorry for myself, almost crying, and I noticed the other children laughing all around me. The teacher was telling a story. I turned back to the window. Outside, a woman got out of her car and headed into the building. She didn't have a jacket, just a dress that flipped around her legs with the wind. She raised her hands to protect her face and ran to the building. I was warm and dry, and then I did start crying to myself as I turned back to class to listen. Jessica, 1996. I was 15. Mom was driving to the grocery store. I was sitting in the passenger seat listening to Piano Man on the radio for the first time. I thought this was a happy song, I said. It's called Piano Man. I thought it was about, like, a happy man that played the piano for kids or something. <laughs> she didn't look at me because her eyes were on the road, but she responded by singing along with the music. I always liked Mom's voice, even though I would have been so embarrassed if she sang like that in front of my friends. I probably should like her voice, Should like her voice though. She was the person who sang me to sleep at night when I was a baby. Not that I had any memory of it. Today she sang louder than usual. Her alto fit right in with the voice on the radio. And it seemed like she'd been waiting for a chance to sing this song for years. She knew it really well, and I wondered why I had never heard it before. He's happy, she said during her harmonica solo, and he's playing it out for people, even if they're not kids. I rolled my eyes at her, thinking she probably just liked the song because it was as old as she was. Yeah, but they're all sad. This song is depressing. I turned it down and we hit the corner of University and Forest next to the Walmart. Mom tapped the steering wheel as the next song came on, whatever it was. I just looked out the window at the cars, then at the people in the cars. It seemed like every car had one person in it. They were all waiting at the light, looking bored. Some of them played with their hands. One lady looked at herself in the mirror and picked at her teeth. A teenage boy was either singing or monologuing. A college student, probably only a few years older than me, crouched low over the steering wheel. She looked tired, and I wondered what kind of day she was going through. I'm not the center of the universe, I thought. All of these people have places to go and things to do, and none of them have anything to do with me. Amen.
I love that story. Thank you. Um, I do too. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. <laughs> I really love that story. Yeah. So. All three of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the way they fit together. Um, And so, uh, uh, yeah, I love the way that they fit together and the way that it does get at these really important Mormon um, beliefs about genealogy and family and personal revelation, um, but in this like very quiet, very thoughtful way and in a way that um, I think kind of interrupts our normal ways of just kind of by default thinking about those things. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciate that a lot. Um, I want to start by asking you about a few of the specific kind of moments. Well, and maybe not so much even asking, but just celebrating a couple of the specific moments and images you create here. Um, and how you fit so much into such a small space. Um, yeah, this this poem is a Provo basement apartment, right? So much is fit into such a small space. <laughs> um, well, I would say I would say it's a Bloomington, Indiana basement apartment, okay. but they're. Yeah. Very similar. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Every university town has those. Yeah. Maybe not basement. basement. They don't really have basements in yep. Bloomington. Okay. But a very similar feel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, that the starting three sentences contain this whole, well, you know, not three, but even just two contain this whole slow motion tragedy. Yeah. Right. We, we rented a small basement apartment next to the university. So John could call, come home for lunch if he wanted to, but he often didn't. That alone has this immense looming tragedy, right? Held in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that came across because I really wanted this story to be real and to mm -hmm. feel complete, but yeah. it really was a short amount of time. So I had yeah. to really try to fit it in. Yeah. And, and just the, the immediate sense I get from that is here's this woman who she signed up for a group project, right? They had a plan that was, this is what we're doing together. And then she finds herself doing a group project alone. <laughs> and it's devastating. But then we see her like rise to that. Um, and that's what her story that the first generation of Sonder is about is her rising and finding joy in this tragedy <laughs> yeah um and 
seeing her do that, I feel so sorry for John, who missed it. Yeah. Um, yeah. That this beautiful, amazing thing was happening right next to him in the basement apartment that he could have come home to lunch in any day, right? Um, and this beautiful revelatory moment that the story ends with, it is, it, it's during a weekday lunch, right? One of those lunches that John could have come home for. But he's not there, so he doesn't get to see his daughter grab his wife's face and exclaim about the glory of strawberry jam. Um, and he's he's the one who loses um yeah i i really like that reading which i hadn't i mean i've given a lot of thought to his character and to all Mm -hmm. the characters but i never really thought about what he was missing out on but i like it partly because one of the questions that I, I thought a lot about when I was writing this piece was should one of the generations have a man like should mm-hmm. it be Jane yeah. and and Brandon oh. and Jessica mm-hmm. right yeah. should it yeah and, and every time I thought about that I felt a little guilty uh-huh. because I knew I knew it couldn't be that way I knew that as a woman wanting to yeah. write about women and their experiences I knew mm-hmm. that I just I just couldn't pull it off but I'm glad that his character is still present for you in the story, even though yep. he he doesn't get a section named after him. Yeah. Um, and there's there's so much else, right? Everything in this story, I could just keep going and pulling images and spending a long time talking about how lovely they are. <laughs> um, the, the, the description for Linda's... Uh, generation of Sonder, I'll just pull out the line. Um, Again, this two sentences, right? Uh, Children, we often don't take seriously their interior experience. Um, And you like really, really do in this story. Um, And so the in the middle of Linda's experience, I, nine years old, felt like I was beginning to vanish, like I was evaporating into an atmosphere of violence and contention, slowly floating away alone. Right? That, like, just the despair and ennui that a nine-year-old can experience when everything is just going wrong. And when it's clear that the world just, like, doesn't work the way it should. And and a nine-year-old who who uh, seven years earlier had been overjoyed just to have some jam. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Her life not turned out the way she had expected yeah. it to. <laughs> there, there are not nearly enough strawberry jam sandwiches in life. Um, and then the immediate next line is then, although I neither expected nor sought to be, I was enlightened we see like this first vision moment really um, where she like encounters a fundamental truth that saves her from this floating away. 
Um, yeah. And and this one was for me. This was the hardest section to to write. I have more versions of this middle mm. section than of the other two that are just sitting saved on my computer mm-hmm. with all different types of scenes and and different things happen. And and I I think it's partly because when I was nine, I didn't have I didn't really get that I wasn't the center of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> I felt that I was. I, I didn't figure it out until, I mean, I fit in age-wise exactly where Jessica fits in. Okay. And Linda fits in age-wise pretty close to where my mom does, and Jane pretty close to where my grandmother does. Okay. So, so some of these experiences are taken from fam- from my family history. Yeah. And um, so when I was writing it, I had less um, personal experience, experiencing what um what Linda was going through, mm-hmm. but I really wanted, and I used all of my imagination to try to make a scenario where a nine-year-old could have that enlightenment. Yeah. Even, even though I didn't when I was yeah. nine, I was yeah. definitely a teenager when for the first time I realized what there's other people in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And they actually have interior lives that are as rich as my own. Like I, I yeah. never realized that at nine. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to to create a nine year old and put her in a situation where she would realize that younger, uh-huh. yeah. where she would have that gift. Yeah, and as someone who was like a very um, serious nine year old who <laughs> did have to grapple with um, some of the brokenness of the world in interesting ways. Um, yeah, it, it did ring very true um, to to that feeling. Um, and it's interesting because I also, I, I can remember, um, it for me, it wasn't the first time I had this thought, but with uh, Jessica's section, the 15-year section, um, you know, it, there's this great Billy Joel moment which makes me very happy because I, I like Billy Joel. And that is also one of my parents' favorite songs, which I also thought was kind of weird that it's like, this, this really is not a happy song, but you guys love it. Um, I understand it better now. I, I think I might like it better than my parents do. Uh-huh. But... <laughs> yeah. Um. And I love the the description of Linda's singing voice. Um, and, but, but I, so I have a very, very similar memory to this of as a teenager, um, my mom was driving me um, back um, from a, a sports practice. And the song, um, that came on was the oh and I'm blanking on the name of the song now but the da 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 in the car and it, you know, it was at night, the street lights kind of shining in through the windows. 
and thinking about the people in the cars around us um and just having this like very strong moment of peace um in the car with my mom with the radio playing yeah Um, i think i think the 90s was like the last (laughs) decade where driving around in the car listening to the radio was like a thing you just did yeah man now that that makes me sad part of of a lot of people's childhoods in that time now i'm not sure that the youth do it now i don't really Uh think that they listen to the radio at all yeah well because spotify is way better than the radio yeah yeah um you can choose what you want to listen to but and it's still billy joel it's still billy joel that's true (laughs) um but yeah so so those are some initial thoughts on this story um i just think it has such so much packed into this space um yeah Uh, To kind of turn a little to um, some more general um, conversation. Um, So the the story is called Three Generations of Sonder. Um, Yes. Why that title? What is is Sonder? Yes, good. I'm happy to share Sonder because it wasn't the original title of the piece. Mm -hmm. Um, Originally, I toyed with either... um, Ex Narcissio. Okay. And, or um, there is nothing new under the sun. Ah, I like both I, of those titles as well. I do too, yeah. and and I've really I I've been working on this piece for at least five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and originally the focus was about this moment where you realize you're not the center of the universe. I mean uh-huh. that was. That was really what I wanted to capture because yeah. the rare times I've had that realization, um, it's always been just a wonderful, like, like I really do feel enlightened. It just feels mm-hmm. so good to realize that. Yeah. And as I as I have shared this piece through the years with different family members or different friends, I almost submitted it to the Lit Blitz last year, and I didn't feel like it was ready. <laughs> I was just like, nope, I can't do it. I don't think it's ready. Um, one of my, or my brother, actually, not one of my friends, my brother told me, oh, so you're writing a story about Sonder. And I said, I do not know the word Sonder. What does Sonder mean? And he directed me to the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, which All is a, right. dictionary, a dictionary of made-up words. That's that a we dictionary defer- I need. Yes, we definitely should have these words as a part of our larger vocabulary. And I will read the, the definition of the word sonder from their dictionary. Um, I have, and then I can talk about, I have a critique of this, this word and the mm-hmm. definition, but it's still so good. So sonder wow. is a noun, and the definition says, the realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own, populated with their own ambitions, friends, routines, worries, and inherited craziness, an epic story that continues invisibly around you like an anthill sprawling deep underground with elaborate passageways to thousands of other lives that you'll never know existed, in which you might appear only once as an extra sipping coffee in the background, as a blur of traffic passing on the highway, as a lighted window at dusk. 
Ooh, <laughs> I love that. I, I do too. It, but it also doesn't belong in a dictionary of sorrows. <laughs> no, it really doesn't. It, is, it should yeah. be a dictionary of like joys, probably. Yeah. But but when I read that, I said that's exactly the 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 realization that I'm talking about. And even though the word isn't perfect, I think it sounds a lot more like an, a verb than a noun. Is mm. one of my biggest <laughs> criticisms. Yeah. Uh, sounds like ponder or wonder, like something yeah. you do. Like I'm gonna go sondering for the weekend, which yeah, which it, maybe we should. Yeah. Maybe it should be a verb, and like you need to yeah. do this more often. Realize that you are not the center. Yeah, right. um, I think I think it could be a noun or a verb. Yeah, but when I read the definition, I knew I should I should put a nod to that word in the mm -hmm. piece somewhere. Yeah, and I didn't think of a way that made sense to fit it in the main text. Yeah, so I. I put it in the title and even toyed with putting an epigraph of the definition, um, but ended up choosing not to for yeah. uh, emotional reasons that make no logical sense. No, so. I, yeah, those are very valid. Those are very, a very valid category of reason. Epigraphs in a piece that's less than a thousand words feels like pretentious to me. I think that was yeah. why I didn't. And that's that I can, I can see that. And, um, Although I do, so there's a poetry collection that I love. Um, it's uh, F-E-G, um, like silly poems for wise children or something. I forget the exact title. But it's a poetry collection that I ran into when I was 11 years old. And it's got, it just is poems that play around with words in a lot of fun ways. And one of my favorite poems in there is one where the title is like eight times as long as the poem. <laughs> Um, I and I, I always thought that that was a great thing. And that may, uh, as you may have noticed, m my piece has a really long title. And I wonder how much of that is trying to like recreate this simple joy I had as an 11 year old with this poem that has this absurdly long title. <laughs> um, I think it's pretty yeah. sad that your title didn't fit into the, into the field. I am so proud of myself for beating that limit um, <laughs> so yeah. yeah and i do have to say one of my favorite poems when i think about it which is litany by billy mm. collins it has an epigraph yeah yeah so and i know you can do it i've read yeah. i i can think of a few times when i've read good poems yeah. with epigraphs but this yeah. isn't a poem yeah this so isn't a poem it it's, it's poemish story cycle yeah it's you know? it's, it's know. beautiful it's beautiful is what it is <laughs> Uh, since you bring up Lydney, the for anyone who wants to see the best YouTube video in existence, there uh -huh. is a YouTube video in which a two-year-old or three-year-old recites Lydney from memory. I have seen that YouTube video and it is very good. Now, can you confirm? It, was, it might the, not be the best in okay. existence. But it's but up it's there. I will, I will second that recommendation. Yeah. I, I've tried to get my kids to memorize long poems, and the best we've ever done is my one of my sons, when he was about four years old, had the first two stanzas of Ebenezer Bleezer's Ice Cream Store memorized. Ah, <laughs> he one. never got the whole poem down, yeah. but it was pretty cute just to good. hear that point. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, the, mm -hmm. one of the great things in that video, the kid's intonation is just fabulous. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And he, it's just he knocks it out of the park. Yeah. Um, so I want to explore more this, this idea of the realization that you are not the center of the universe. Um, because like you, I, I agree that I think this is, first of all, one of the most important things we can realize. And second of all, one of the most joyful and relieving things we can realize. Absolutely. Um, but our, the way we live and the world we live in is not set up to help us have this realization. Um, oh, uh, absolutely not. Yeah. And, and just as I hear you saying it, like, I think, man, maybe I need to get off social media for another few months just to help me yeah. re remember yep. I'm not the center of the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And so yeah, actually, I, um, oh yeah. Go ahead. No, you, you. I, I think it goes along with me with two other realizations. And now I'm feeling like I need to pull up another quote. Okay. So you're going to hear computer clicking. Um, and these are realizations that to me are very closely connected mm -hmm. uh, with the realization that we're not in the universe. I mean, Nephi, is it Nephi? Um, no, Moses really, mm. really hits on mm -hmm. it when he yeah. says, man is nothing. Yep. Which, yep. which thing I never had supposed, right? Yeah. I mean, that is, that is definitely a realization, realizing just how yeah. little you, you actually matter to yeah. almost everything. Yeah. Um, I, it can bring existential dread, but it also can really feel good. Yeah. And when he says <laughs> really, that, he has that realization after he sees the whole history of the world. Right? Exactly. He gets this like fast forward vision of the whole history of the world and all the different lives will, that will be lived. And here's this guy who's been living in tremendous prestige in the royal court of Egypt, right? Like the most prestigious empire of his era in the world. Yeah. And then he sees everything else that's going to happen and realizes like just how empty <laughs> all of that pomp and circumstance is. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. And, and I found the other quote that mm -hmm. really, when I read this, it it put words to a feeling I'd had over and over again. Okay. And this is, this is from Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, oh. which is one of my favorite books. Oh, I love uh, Gilead so much. Gilead is just, it's like, I don't know how to describe it. It's just slow and healing to read. Yes, that is a very good description. But she has two short sentences she says, there are two occasions when the sacred beauty of creation becomes dazzlingly apparent, and they occur together. One is we f when we feel our mortal insufficiency to the world, and the other is when we feel the world's mortal insufficiency to us. And I think that when you have that moment of, in, of just realization that you aren't the center of the universe, at the same time, there is this gratitude that even though you're not, God still loves you that much. Yeah. And that you're yep. still that important to him, right? Yeah. And, and so those two realizations that come together, um, and that's why, I, that's why I, when I, before I said Moses, I said Nephi, because the scripture yeah. that I often pair with, um, I know that man is nothing, is in Nephi when 
and, and I'm getting emotional now. I apologize. Yeah. Don't don't apologize. <laughs> these, this is emotional these are stuff. Emotional for me. Yeah. <laughs> Nephi, when um, Nephi is asked, um, do you? I think it's about the con. Yeah. Do you know about condescension of all things? And he you, says, Yeah. I do know that God loveth his children, but I don't know the meaning of all things. Yeah. And even though we're nothing, God loves us, and He's condescended below all things to save us. Yeah. And so, and so those two yeah. ideas kind of embody that moment of realization when you just think, I'm nothing. Wow, but isn't it wonderful that, yeah. that my nothingness is so well loved? Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, so condescension of God is interesting. So it's a, it's a theological concept. Um, you know, I, we have no idea in the Book of Mormon what the like original... Um, reformed Egyptian is that's being captured here. But right. um, Joseph Smith translates it as condescension of God. And that's a, a theological concept in um, sort of Protestant thought that's developed by Joseph Smith's time that is a is a term for how God makes eternity and infinity, right, which God is, comprehensible mm -hmm. to the human mind okay um and and it was a concept that joseph would have been familiar with and taught yeah. yes in his okay. yeah joseph likely would have heard the term condescension of god for this this specific right that god who is infinite and eternal fits into space and time because he wants us to be able to understand right and so he condenses himself condescends to the level of our comprehension in order to and, engage in conversation with us and he puts on and and this is yeah closer to my reading a mortal yeah. body yes and he yeah suffers us. yeah yeah and the incarnation yeah. is a very very strong aspect of the condescension of god yeah, yeah. and and he does all of this he 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 slums with us because yeah. he loves us so well, and, much. And because, like, he loves living, right? Like, he loves bodies and wanted to have one and thinks mm -hmm. that they're important, even though we're like, these are really weird and uncomfortable. Why did you give us one? Until we eat a strawberry jam sandwich, and then we're like, jam! That's why! <laughs> this is what I'm here for! <laughs> If I didn't have a tongue, I would not know the glory of jam. <laughs> um, which is a feeling I'm having currently. I uh, I made homemade lemon curd for the first time this week. Oh, that is delicious. Um, and yeah, so uh, Linda's jam epiphany is very <laughs> familiar to me at this moment in my life. Yeah. Um, yeah. Children children have no filter. They have no ability if they're if they're enjoying a food. Yeah. It's going to be apparent if they're so Yeah. Yeah, it's especially they're they're especially easy to Yeah. watch, enjoy beautiful things. Yeah. Which you just reminded me with the no filter, one of my strangest religious experiences. Um which was uh I had the experience a few years ago of um, teaching four-year-olds in primary. 
Um, so, you know, they've just come in from nursery, um, yeah. you know, the three yeah, and four year old class <laughs> and our very first lesson was the lesson on, um, I will always tell the truth. And we realized that these were children who did not yet know what lying was. So first we had to teach them how to lie in order to help them understand why it's important to tell the truth. And I felt really, really bad about teaching three-year-olds what a lie is. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I have a two-year-old and he has definitely lied. Oh, they me. can. They definitely can lie, but they don't yeah, yet yeah. know yeah, no, what it is. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and to like... To understand, like, it's important to always tell the truth. Like, you you need the concept of a lie and of an intentional lie. Yeah. And that's not, you know. So I felt like I, I was, like, offering the forbidden fruit to these souls in the Garden of Eden to be like, look, you, you can lie. That's an option. When there's an uncomfortable question your parents ask you, you could lie or you could tell the truth. And they're like, oh. I hope my examples were so obviously wrong and uh -huh. and evil that they like never yeah. wanted to tell a lie in their lives. Yeah, I don't I remember. Always find myself I hope so. That I always find myself like, you might not want to get in trouble, so you might want to say this instead. And then I think, why yeah. did I just say that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why? Why am I giving them strategy advice? Even though I just you might want to you shouldn't yeah. say that yeah it would be really easy to do this it it might keep you from getting in trouble at that moment you know but there are advantages to a life of sin children um <laughs> it will catch up with you i promise eventually yeah so yeah um they all figure it out eventually. Yeah, they do. They and, do. And they all figure it out that it's a bad idea. But well, hopefully I guess not all of not, them. I do not not everyone. That, but but most of them that are yeah that are being guided figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. So and uh, one of my earlier guests on the podcast, Maddie Beckstrand, uh, another of the finalists. Um, she, we just ended up discussing a similar idea to, um, what you're getting at here, kind of the inverse, what she calls main character syndrome, uh -huh. where you're incapable of really understanding other people's experience because of your belief that you are in fact the, the main character, the center of the universe. I, yeah, yeah. I definitely think that I spend more time there than yeah. I spend in my story, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> in Sonder. Um, but yeah, so I think there's a lot to be talked about, about like, how can we get to this place? And as you said, get there more often. Um, mm -hmm. So, but thank you for offering us Sonder as a gift in this way. I'm so glad that that it was received as well as it has been. I was yeah. just so honored to be a finalist this year. Yeah. <laughs> um, so on that, so you said you have uh, been reading the Lit Blitz since the beginning and you've submitted several times. 
Um, would you like to tell us some of your favorite Lit Blitz participants or other Mormon literature um, recommendations? I am horrible at remembering, and part of it comes from reading a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, just all is floating there. I, I would definitely say some of my favorites from this year. Okay. Because they're yeah. in my mind. Yeah. Um, I, I, will, I will even, um, I'm trying to think if this is kosher, um, share who I voted for. Oh, that, that does somewhat violate the principle of a secret ballot, but I will not report you to the Litwitz authorities. So. Uh, there was one, so I, I am, I do have the syndrome of feeling like I'm the main character. For second place, I voted for myself. Mm -hmm. um, but there was one piece that I, as much as I wanted to tell myself my piece was better because I wanted to, because of course <laughs> I wanted to win. I just couldn't, and it was, and I'm looking for, the, I, I remember some of the words in the title, but I'm looking for the whole title. Let's see. See, I voted for my piece first, even though I knew my piece wasn't the best. <laughs> I was just like, look, no one else will. I've got I to. And on voting for my piece first, yeah. and then this piece just inspired a lot of emotion in me and it yeah. was emily harris adams orpheus sings to mary oh, yeah that's so beautiful that's so beautiful i, I loved it i just and yeah. and i have just recently been reading I do, I do a lot in my writing at times of uh mythological retellings mm -hmm. and fairy tale retellings and i had just read the story of orpheus and i've been listening to hades town oh. and of course uh mary and martha and lazarus is a story that really moves me every time i hear it yeah and, and i don't like most villanelles but i this one just i couldn't even tell it was a villanelle <laughs> it was so well done <laughs> um so it was one of my favorites. I, I happen to absolutely love villanelles and I'm basically immediately won over if a poem is a villanelle. So I'm glad to hear that that one works even for opponents of the form. <laughs> Normally uh, I just find yeah. them repetitive. Yeah. There's I, been one other villanelle that I, I loved. Um, and the way they made it work was by changing little tiny uh, things. Yeah. Punctuation. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it was uh, the grammar lesson. By Ooh, Stephen that's a good that one. That is that is up there in the category of super fun villanelles. Yeah. Um, another one that I enjoy. They might be giants. Have a song. Don't hate the villain. Hate the villanelle. And the song is a villanelle. Which is a villanelle. I'm gonna have to listen to. I've heard that song before, but I didn't know it was a villanelle. It's now a villanelle. It's it's fabulous. Um, one, of the, one of the saddest things about the coronavirus is that we had tickets, my husband and oh, I, to a giant concert, and it got canceled. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that, it will, it's rescheduled. We'll see if in okay. October. Yeah. Not, but. Hopefully, hopefully by then, inshallah. Um, hopefully by October we'll be able to do things like that again. But yeah, big groups. It's dangerous right now. 
And here's the thing. We really we really need to protect they might be giants because they are a national treasure. And they so, um, yeah, we need to, like, seal them in plastic wrap. Too. They yeah. are just, just a band that you can love, you know, at, yeah. at one stage in your life. You know, they have something for everybody. They absolutely do. My two-year-old to my teen, you know, almost teenager to, to my husband and I, like, there's just and it, this was a flood anniversary tour because flood ooh, came out ooh. Flood came out years ago. Yeah. Oh man. And they were gonna play every song from Flood during the concert. Oh, that is yeah, that's a devastating loss. My condolences <laughs> to you for yeah. this loss. Um, but I'm gonna have to go back and listen to their Villanelle yeah. song again. Or, yeah. And actually know this time that it is a villanelle. Yeah. Because Flood is one of the albums that I grew up listening to. Again, in the days before Spotify, children, we listened exactly. to albums on their own. And, like, yeah. you didn't have a lot. You had the ones you bought. And uh, so that was one of the ones that I, um, my brothers and I had gotten a number of They Might Be Giants albums and we listened to them frequently. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and it was a rare album that pretty much every song on it was good. Yeah. Yes. Like, you didn't have to skip any because yeah. you were sick of them. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe my favorite would change from year to year. Yeah. But I pretty much liked all of them. Yeah. Um, Blood was the only CD that when I got married, we had two copies of. Ooh, that, that, that's like one of the ways you know you picked the right person. Yeah. Right. Well, we had completely different collections yeah. in every other way. So, you know, there yeah. was some dissonance there, but yeah. we both but loved Flood. This was people. the combining point where you're like, this, if this is what we have in common, it's enough. It's enough. It's it, enough. It, really, it really is. So wonderful. Well, we, we should wrap up here. I try to keep episodes under an hour and we're currently at 50 minutes and i would like to let you end with another piece because uh as we were discussing things i asked you know you mentioned at the beginning this was not your first submission to the liplets um and so you've offered to share with us one of your previous submissions right one of those uh that you entered in the liplets and it was not uh published by the Liplets, but it has been published by Inscape. Yes. So last year when I didn't submit Three Generations of Sonder because it mm, wasn't ready yeah. yet, I submitted a couple of other pieces. And one of them was this short piece that um, then was, was published by um, BYU's literary magazine, Inscape. And it actually won their, this is like now me tuning my own horn, but it won their best fiction piece Wonderful. contest that semester. Well, this um, is... It's very short. Okay. Yeah, this is a podcast where you are very welcome to toot your own horn, for the record. Um, <laughs> this is my yeah. first podcast, and I just feel like I'm so honored, and I'm going to share it with everyone, and, and it will become a vehicle for me to tell people, look, I am a real writer. I'm not just pretending. Yeah, um, that's exactly what this is for, right? This is this is a mutual conspiracy for all of us to be able to prove we're real writers because everyone knows only real writers are on podcasts. 
Right. Actually, my husband, who is a a food blogger, um, he has gone on half a dozen podcasts. And when nice. I got your invitation, I went to him and I said, guess who's being invited on a podcast? And of course he said, me. And I said, no, <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah. It's me this time. They heard right, this- that I like strawberry jam. It's a food podcast. But, uh, There's a food podcast called Strawberry Jam? Well, I'm just saying because of the strawberry jam in your story. Uh, I, I will now so start a food podcast called Strawberry Jam where we just read that section of Three Generations of Sonder every episode. <laughs> I'll have to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Can, so- you, can you read this piece to us? Yes, this is, this is titled, I Dreamed That We Were Sister Wives. And I wasn't upset in my dream. We wore the long dresses and little white bonnets on our heads. There were children, but I didn't know if they were yours or mine or if they belonged to another woman who was another sister wife. She was both present and not present all at once. And I think I knew her a long time ago. But maybe she was just a made-up dream person. It was only a dream, remember? And I can't be blamed for what happens in my dreams. I am asleep and have no control. But it was a good dream while I was dreaming it. You were there with me, and we worked together. We drove together. Together we made some food and big bowls and carried them outside to a picnic table. There were people everywhere. It was sunny. You are such a wonderful friend to me. And in the dream, it was the same. We smiled at each other, and we laughed as we wiped children's faces and hands, preparing them to eat. We laughed at their dirty cheeks and their reckless abandon and the joy they felt as they played. I never met our dream husband. He wasn't there. But for part of the dream, I knew that he was Joseph Smith. And for part of the dream, I knew he was a boy I dated in high school. And for part of the dream, he was your own real-life husband, and that felt awkward. And for part of the dream, he was my own husband. That's when I woke up. I think it would be best if we didn't see each other for a week or two. Maybe a few days would even be enough. I don't know. I know you can't be blamed for what happens in my dreams either. It's not your fault that my subconscious threw us together like that. But I'm still just not going to be comfortable around you for a while. Sorry. 